Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host, and I am so excited by your wise decision to join us today. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we help entrepreneurs, small business owners, and local business owners just like you win at the game of business and marketing. And if you're tuned in, that means you're a business creator and you may be one of several different categories, one of which are the entrepreneurs, small business owners, and local business owners. We also have marketing and business coaches, the folks who help others build their businesses, such as the assistants, the designers, the strategists, and the managers. And on the other side of the coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who love to have your own hands on the marketing levers as you grow your business. If you are any of the above... Please take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe. Fresh content added every week. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated and helps us help more business creators just like you. Today, we are going to talk about how to buy and sell businesses. This is going to be a little bit of a departure from what we normally talk about on the Business Creators Radio Show, but we have had some people come to us say that you know we talk about uh, copywriting and advertising and social media and email and becoming an expert influencer and thought leadership, publicity, persuasion. These are just some of the topics that we have tracks on inside the Business Creators Radio Show lineup. And a few folks have come to us lately and said, you know, this is all great, but I'd like to just buy a business. And I got on the phone with one of these folks and you know, I asked questions like, you know, are you looking to, uh, I mean, you're looking for investors, you're looking for this to be capitalized, are you looking for um, something where it's completely turnkey, where you just walk in, sit down in the captain's chair and drive, or are you looking for something where it's sort of like a fixer-upper? And I got some feedback on some of these questions. And one of the big questions that came up, of course, is how do you buy a business when you really don't have a lot of money to buy a business? So is it a matter of using other people's money? Is there a way to finance? What are some of these different ways that we can buy a business? And it got me pretty curious as well, which is why we went out and we found somebody who will be an absolute genius when it comes to sharing with you about how to build, or excuse me, how to buy and sell businesses. And that is none other than Ace Chapman, who is an expert at business acquisitions. And just to tell you a little bit about Ace, he bought his first business when he was 19 years old. It was an online stock market simulator called Cool Wall Street. After selling it and seeing the benefits in buying a business over starting one, he caught the business buying bug. And since then, he's bought and sold over 30 businesses and has helped his clients all over the world buy over 100 businesses. Uh, Ace, welcome to the Business Creators Radio Show. It's great to be with you. I'm excited to talk about some of those things that your listeners had questions on. That's what we do every day, so this is exciting. Absolutely. Now, normally, uh, what we do here at the Business Creators Radio Show is we, before we dive into the main part of the content of what we're going to cover, is we ask the person... Uh, what it is that drove them, some of the passions and some of the backstory that brought them to where they are today and how they serve business creators. And I'd kind of like to hear yeah. that from you. So um, I guess one place to start with that is 
you know, I think you got started buying businesses back when you were a college student. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what drove you into this area and uh, just kind of the story behind it. We know a little bit about where you got started. You were 19 years old and you bought an online stock market simulator. But just tell us a story uh, because this sounds pretty exciting based on what you shared with me in the green room. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it it definitely was not any grand plan. I actually was on the path to become an attorney. Uh, I was a a political science major in in college, but I've also been this business nerd. And so there's a side of me that wanted the safe, secure thing. But then there was this other side that just loved business. And and that's why I, I was a user of this stock market simulator. I remember back when I was a little kid, just being fascinated by the stock market and reading everything I could to get get, get my hands on about it. Um, and so I came across this little game, and this is when something like that was novel back in uh, 98, 99. And I was just a user of, of their service and they were running it terribly. The servers were always going down. You could never get in touch with anybody. Everybody on the site was complaining. They wouldn't even respond to the complaints on the site itself. Wow. <laughs> so it, was, it was run pretty bad, but it, there were no options. They still were <laughs> making plenty of money uh, and had about 9,000 users and, and all of that. And so somebody was coming up, and I reached out to them, and I, I really thought, oh, it would be so cool if I could come in, intern for this business, maybe help improve things, and then I'll have that on, on my resume. So I reached out to them uh, and asked them about interning, and it was a while before I heard back, but eventually they wrote back and said, actually, we uh, have a much bigger, bigger project we're working on. We don't want this business. We'd rather just sell it. Instead of interning, would you want to buy it? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it <laughs> that escalated quickly. So we, we talked back and forth. They came up with a price of $70,000, uh, which was actually one time's earnings. And it was an amazing, amazing deal. There was just one problem. I had about $3,000 saved up from the summer before working. <laughs> right. So I tell them, yeah, of course I'll take it. <laughs> and then I go and, and kind of you know, not be anything for two days thinking, what was I thinking? I can't find this thing. We're going to come up with $67,000 more. Might, might as well have been $10 million. Right. And uh, so the, the very first thing that I did in that deal was go back. I ended up negotiating with them. The finance 50% was, was, I realized later, absolutely outrageous because they had already given me this amazing deal on price. But that's one of the things that we focus on today is, Sometimes it's worth asking for the outrageous. I learned on my very first deal that sometimes the outrageous does happen. Uh, and then I, I had a buddy of mine who had a little bit of his savings, and I, I pitched the deal to him. He was willing to put up uh, about 15000 And then I secretly, because my parents would have absolutely murdered me if they figured out, but I secretly applied to a couple of uh, credit cards and got some cash advances and that made up the difference between my 3000 and, and, and the rest. And so right. I was able to buy that very first deal. And, and that really changed my path. I grew that business from 10,000 people to 200,000, ended up leaving college um, and still had a, a little bit, uh, after I sold that business, 
was uh, approached by a, a bank about doing some things similar to what we did with Cold Wall Street and ended up in a corporate job. And I'm really glad that I did because it, it confirmed, I spent a year with them and it was, a, it was a great experience, but it absolutely confirmed that corporate bureaucracy and politics and, and just everything involved with having a job was not something I was interested in and, and have been committed to uh, doing deals and buying businesses and all that stuff ever since. You know, as you were beginning to tell us your story there, Ace, I wanted to just burst in and say, oh my goodness gracious, were we separated at birth? I, too, <laughs> in college, was a political science major. I, too, was planning on becoming an attorney. That, so that's two things we have in common right there. Now, the divergence for me actually came after I completed college, and then I went to take this thing called the LSAT, the LSAT, that placement, uh, or actually that aptitude mm -hmm. test you take before you apply to law school. And Dude. just studying for the thing, I ended up taking my study notes and throwing them aside and saying, I don't want this. <laughs> and it caused me it caused me to look back at a couple things introspectively. The reason I originally got excited about the prospect of becoming an attorney, I thought back to my childhood, it's because my real childhood dream was to become president of the United States, and somehow I became convinced that uh, all of our presidents had been lawyers. Uh, mm. Funny thing, I should have studied a little bit more closely, even though even at the age of 10, I was already reading advanced uh, presidential biographies, and I could look at all these presidents who, in fact, did not go to law school, but somehow I became persuaded they did. I don't know. <laughs> so maybe that's where the poli side kicked in. Then I decided, you know, I really don't want to be president either. I mean, I mean, when Donald Trump kind of sticks himself in the race and pulls back out again, I kind of understand where he's coming from, although I wish he would just make up his mind one way or the other so I can decide whether or not to vote for him. I mean, I mean, yeah. the tease has been nice, but, you know, after a while, if you tease somebody too much, it just gets to the point yeah. where they say, ah, never mind. So that's business and marketing, too. You tease your audience too much without delivering any goods eventually they're just going to go somewhere else to somebody who's going to please them so i also thought back to what was i doing when during my college years and what really drove me was it those political science classes eh, you know, I, I wrote the term papers i showed up i participated in the discussion but every spare moment i had what i was really doing is I would, and, this, and just to date myself, this is the late 1990s. This is back in the days when GeoCities websites and frame versus no frames was the big debate in website design. Um, I uh, was playing with my GeoCities website. I had one of those. It's no longer online, so don't even think about it. And uh, I also, um, also, um, I spent a lot of my time. On the internet, uh, this is before Google, so I don't know if you would call it Alta Vistaing or whatever you would call it back yeah. in the day. Uh, but I was looking up information about competition sound systems for cars. In other words, car stereos. Because I was in the process of building a competition system for my Camaro. That is what really drove me. And I was beginning to see in the very beginning that some of these sites sold the amplifiers and the subwoofers and the custom head units and the wiring and things like that that I would need to build my system. And I started to get the idea, oh, wait a minute, there's other things you can do with cars too. You can customize the interiors uh, with soundproofing and special kick panels to center the sound stage. And I even made a few phone calls and I spoke with a couple companies about the possibility of becoming a distributor 
for one of these companies that sold this stuff who were just getting started on the internet and i allowed people unfortunately again i and i own this i'm not blaming anybody but i allowed myself to be dissuaded by people who in my estimation didn't really have a vision i'm already thinking boy wouldn't it be fun to grab the bull by the horns here so that's what i meant by i was kind of kicking and screaming here just wanted to interrupt you because you did something that I thought about every single day, which is buying a business while I was still in college. I mean, I was already persuaded that uh, it's a certain level that this whole thing probably wasn't for me, but I just didn't quite know exactly where I was going with it. And I was looking for that answer. And if I knew then one-tenth of what I know now, I may very, may very well have not completed my college degree because I might have found something more lucrative and more exciting. And I'm not going to call that dropping out because I hate that term, dropping out. Uh, it doesn't make you a failure because you leave college to go become uh, an internet millionaire. It makes you a success. So I don't understand this whole <laughs> dropping out, out thing. It's like it, it, it says that basically there's one way to go about life and everything else is wrong. So yeah. you're going to share with us yeah. – Great stuff about what to look for in businesses and to determine the value of all that, which I know is something that some of our listeners are looking for. But one thing we do here before we dive into that is there's a question I ask all of our guest experts. Because here's the thing. Here at the Business Creators Radio Show, we have had our listeners tell us that pretty much they can do anything that we recommend they do in terms of building and growing their business. They have all the resources they need except for time and money. Now, I love asking this question, not only because of the variety of different responses I get, but also the variety of different ways the question is interpreted. So you tell me, Ace, how do time and money play a role or have an impact when it comes to buying and selling businesses? Oh, wow. That, that's such a, a, a great question. Uh, I mean, those are our two most powerful resources, and that's really kind of my motivation behind buying over starting from, from scratch and why I'm, I'm really passionate about sharing that, that message. Number one, uh, you know, we just look at the two paths. You look at the path of starting a business versus going out and buying a business. When you consider starting, you've got a lot of these steps that have to take place. And, you know, there was a point where I felt like I was the man. I'd done four deals. Uh, you know, I'd done the Cool Wall Street. I bought a, a, an existing franchise. I bought another one and uh, decided, oh, you know what? I'm going to start from scratch <laughs> because I'm an amazing entrepreneur. And then I realized what a headache it was because I had my very first business. The day after I closed, I was cash flow positive in, in that business. Wow. Um, and, and that was every deal that I had done. So I'm the master entrepreneur. I'm going to go out here and start a business. So the very first thing was I had to make the deposit and get the licenses for the, the location of the business and all that stuff. Right. Uh, then I had to go out and start paying the lease, get the you know utilities, everything cut on. Uh, then I started, you know, of course, still a long ways from making money. I paid for the build out. 
uh, of the location. I go and I hire some employees. I got to train them and pray that they're the right employees. Everybody that <laughs> has worked for me before were, were tried and true by those other uh, and, uh, business owners. After that, I've got to do some marketing to try to make sure that we have a good grand opening before we, we uh, get rolling the business. And eventually, after all of that, we've had months and, and we get to the day one of opening and we're still not going to be at break even. We've got another year, two years of running the business just to get to the point where we're profitable and, you know, everything is, is sustainable. And so it was uh, a couple of things. Obviously, I, I have to, and, and why I can commend you for your story, sometimes you got to go through things to really understand the benefits of the way that, that you, you've done things in the past. And so I had to get that job in order to realize, right. like, oh, man, this is, this is terrible. I have to go out and start from scratch to realize, like, oh, my goodness, why would anybody ever do this? And so my, my philosophy after that was the toughest and hardest and most expensive years and and it's far and when i say expensive expensive in time and expensive in money because you've got to build all the systems you've got to train all the employees you've got to figure out which marketing is going to work is the, the time where that's the worst is the first five years of a business so why not skip those those first five years right i see and that to me is part of the reason why the idea of buying a business is so attractive because in many cases you can sidestep some of those early steps and just come in when things are good. That's why a lot of businesses and smart businesses that we have our business creators generate are designed with the idea that they will ultimately be saleable in some way. Yeah. And I, in, fact, a- in fact, I've spoken with some entrepreneurs who tell me that uh, they don't even so much is committing to going out and to Walmart and buying a pen unless they can somehow demonstrate that that is going to contribute to the ultimate saleability of the business because they see themselves not being in that business for life, but growing it to a certain point and then getting out of it and then maybe buying another business or starting another business that they'll ultimately sell. So, uh, and I know, yeah, I know you're going to share with us a little bit about the sale, the selling side of the business. So, uh, you know, as we were talking here, you know, you told me some of the things that, are benefits to buying a business. So you kind of skip that first five years and you let somebody else deal with the trauma and the drama of setting up the systems, learning some of the lessons, finding their place in the sun as far as the market. So aside from some of these things and doing your due diligence to see that this has been taken care of, what are some things that you look for when you're thinking about buying a business? Well, one of the things I mentioned a second ago is definitely profitability. Right. You know, when it comes to the uh, uh, being able to buy a business, um, when you're buying something that's profitable, it just is a lot easier to get the deal done. Um, right. and, and one of the things that a lot of people feel like just doesn't exist is financing for businesses. And there are a couple of reasons that the average entrepreneur doesn't feel like that uh, uh, finance exists for, for businesses. And one reason is because everybody goes to the bank. But the truth is banks only provide 7% of the financing that's given to businesses. 
So every time you walk into the bank, it could be that your application is a great fit for one of those other 93% of, of, of types of financing out there, but you've only got a 7% chance that it's the right match for that bank. The other reason is because 90% of the entrepreneurs are out there trying to start something from scratch. And even if you have this brilliant idea that you want to start from scratch, the smarter thing is to find a complementary business that you can buy to grow, grow on top of because there's tons of people that are out there that are interested in financing something that's already proven, something that's making money. I mean, the last business that I bought has been in business for 33 years. And, and a really amazing thing is now we're even seeing, you know, we just did a deal on an internet SaaS business that's been in business for five years and had plenty of offers to, uh, for people that, that wanted to finance that business. So you, it becomes a ton easier. The other thing that I love to look for is what I call low-hanging fruit. So these are things in the business that aren't just, oh, well, I think this uh, industry is going to grow so much, or oh, I think this has such a potential to catch on and grow virally. The, the, what we look for are things that can be instantly leveraged in that business to increase the bottom line. And so I'll give you a couple examples. I just invested with a client in a teeth whitening business. And we bought that business, and one of the things that attracted us to it, in addition to a ton of other opportunities where they weren't really doing marketing and, and that kind of thing, uh, they've been doing the exact same marketing for about eight years. Right. And uh, it was outdated. And so, but the, the, one of the really interesting things was that they had a warehouse where everything was housed. They had a bunch of employees that were taking care of all the shipping and blah, blah, blah. And this represented about 45% of their bottom line. Well, we knew, number one, that we wanted to be selling on Amazon, which they weren't doing, but we also knew that Amazon would take care of all the shipping through their FBA program for about 15%. Right. So we were literally able to drop 30% more down to the bottom line for that business, which was kind of an e-commerce type business, just by getting rid of the warehouse, getting rid of that overhead, shipping everything to Amazon and having them take care of the fulfillment. Another quick example is a deal that I did years ago, which was a tanning salon, where I walked into the business, and this, again, was a business that had been in business over 20 years. And I'm talking to the owner and asking her about her customer list and, and that kind of thing, which is one of, of about 30 questions where we're looking for uh, opportunities within that business. And she tells me, yeah, they've got 14,000 past customers that they have emails and phone and uh, addresses for. And so I asked her, so how often are you contacting them with any of those methods? And she said, we don't really do that. And I said, okay, great. So just tell me, like, when was the last time you did it then? And she said, we don't do that. So we have never contacted them. They don't want to be contacted. <laughs> I told her, I'll take it. So I bought the business right then, and we were able to start marketing to that, uh, their past customers. We tripled the uh, income of the business literally within about two to three months and ended up selling, completely paying it off and selling that business within six months. 
Wow. Uh, and that was just an asset that's just, just sitting there. So we love finding things with, with uh, low-hanging fruit. So those, there's a ton of stuff that we look for, uh, but, but those are two of the crucial things. Uh, and then I'll, I'll say a kind of final thing is we really want to connect the right person with the right deal. So we want to take the talents or the natural skill set, natural skill set that a person has, we want to find a deal where that's gonna, where it's gonna be leveraged. Number right. one, because they're gonna enjoy it a lot more, and number two, because it's actually gonna turn into a lot more profit. And uh, what normally happens is that um, somebody who has a high aptitude for marketing sits down with somebody, a, a seller who has a high aptitude for marketing, and they start talking, they're talking the same language and everything seems great, like, oh, I want to do a deal with this guy. I had a lady who we were doing a deal with some programmers out of California. And um, it was, we had, we'd do some testing with all our clients where we go through a personality testing process, a skill set process. And she had a very high aptitude when it came to marketing. So we uh, are talking to these folks. We get on the phone with them. They had built an amazing business where they, had, they were both programmers. They programmed this uh, amazing business in the, in the, uh, that served the publishing industry. And just with word of mouth, they had grown this thing into a quarter-million-dollar business. Right. And so we, we get off the phone. She had talked to them, and she's like, hey, I cannot do this deal. I don't know what they said. Like, I literally don't understand anything that they said needs to be done with the business. And I was trying to explain, well, listen, they have spent all their time in this business on the programming. And because it's such an amazing product, they've never had to do any marketing. You don't need to do what they're telling you. It's kind of that old saying where they say, uh, the, the person that has the, uh, the, that only has a hammer, uh, everything they look at is going to look like a, a nail. <laughs> so the, they're programmers. Everything they see has a programmable solution. So sure, sure enough, we're able to convince her to do that deal. And last year, she was able to grow it from a quarter million dollar business to a half million dollar business. Spent a lot of that time just testing out things because she was figuring that out. And that's the key. It's not to say you're going to a deal where nothing needs to be figured out. It's just going to a deal where everything doesn't need to be figured out. And so she could focus on everything else in the business was perfect. The systems and operations, everything was immaculate. The product was perfect. So she got to spend 100% of her time, or at least 90% of her time, on the marketing and testing. Grew it to a half million dollar business on this, and, and this year she's on track to grow it to about a 1.2 million dollar business. Oh, that's great! I, I love hearing things like that. You know, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of what we look for in a business. Now, let me just ask one question. This uh, company that said they had all these past buyers uh, who didn't want to be contacted. Uh, did you contact them? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah that's, that's the only thing we did in that deal. Uh, and I have a video. Actually, with both of those deals, the, the lady who uh, grew has grown her business, she's on my YouTube channel where we go into some details there. And I talk about that deal in a little more detail on my YouTube channel. But, yeah, but literally we tripled the size of that business and sold it within six months just by doing one single thing, and that was contacting her past customers that she felt like never wanted to be contacted. <laughs> that, that was, and as you know, as well as I do, that was a rhetorical question. Now, uh, oh, yeah. 
Now, were, now oh, were those yeah. previous customers, were they mad? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about doing it the right way. So we gave them an amazing deal, an absolutely incredible deal, gave them free stuff, because here's the other thing. You know, it's, it's basically a funnel. So the other thing that we, they weren't doing is she had some employees that every day they came in to work and did their homework. You know, a customer comes in, they kind of look up, yeah, okay, go. You know, another customer, yeah, okay, go to room two. So we changed that so that when the customer came in, they were upselling them to some lotion or they were uh, trying to get them into a new package. And they had all these different things, which is the whole would you like fries with that. Uh, uh, way of doing things. And so we, were, we gave them this amazing offer to get them into the door. They were excited that they, to hear from us, and we were able to really explode that, that business in, in a business that she felt like was dead and, and actually had, had sold with uh, uh, kind of just walk-away money. That was another rhetorical question. Uh, would a previous paying customer be upset if you contacted them again? Uh, everybody knows that uh, everybody knows that the easiest customer to get is the customer you already have, and the second easiest customer to get is the customer you had before. Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah, it's amazing. We have to be reminded of that sometimes. Right, right. So, uh, so you've uh, you know you've looked at. Uh, we looked at you know what you look for in a business. You've shown me some great tactics for helping to determine the value of a business. Uh, so, how do you buy a business with no money down? Yeah, that's that's the fun part. That's the yes. fun part. So when, when you're like I uh, kind of alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, which it has the clue within it. Most people try to finance a business like they finance everything else in their life. So normally we think about financing like consumers, and a consumer way of financing thing is really simple. I go, I put in an application at a bank, they tell me yes or no. If they say no, I go to the next bank. I put in my application. If that one says no, I go to the next one. So it, it's a very kind of, um, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the way that most people will go about finding. And it's easy. Right. So that's the path that, of least resistance. And the reason that it's a path of least resistance is because it's, it's built for consumers. Now, when it comes to businesses, it takes a little more work and a little more thought. So you look at a business's balance sheet, which you could pull one, whether it's a Fortune 500 company or it's a tiny little penny stock. You can go and pull a public company's uh, balance sheet. In both cases, you're going to see that they have purposefully put together a, a, a thoughtful capital structure that gives them the best ROI and creates the least risk. So sure, there may be some things that you can't access, like some equity financing uh, or some bond financing. And then there's still some, some, oh, some really great, we're doing a lot of really great equity deals because there's a ton of money out there. But you're not getting access to the bond market. But then there are going to be all these other things out there. There may be some factoring or some accounts receivable financing. There may be some asset-based loans that, that are done. There may be some small bank loans. There may be some equip, equipment sale lease back. But at the end of the day, one of the things that we do, we give our, our clients 100 different 
types of financing like that that's out there dedicated to businesses. And when I talk about the fact that banks only provide 7% of the financing that's done to businesses, those hundreds represent that other 93%. So the problem is most small businesses are fighting for only 7% of the money. So go out because that's where they're trained to go. So our goal is to really not even, I mean, we very small percentage of our deals get bank finance, but we do 100% finance deals and 90% finance deals all the time. And right. it's because we focus on that other 93%. Now, the other really powerful thing in this world that sets it apart from really anything else is that it is fairly standard practice for a seller to provide some type of financing. So when a, a seller is selling a business, one of the things that allows that buyer to know that there's some level of confidence in the business itself is that the seller says, hey, not only am I going to sell it to you, I'm going to give you a fair price, but I'm going to finance 50% of it. And so that gives you a foundation, just like on my very first deal, to go and build some other things. And the neat thing is that not only does that increase your ROI or your return on investment, but it also is a due diligence check. So if somebody doesn't want to finance their, their business or offer any form of owner financing, most of the time we're walking away from that deal because we want to know why. Why don't you have enough faith in, in the business? It could be two, one or two things. could be that they don't have faith in the business. But just as bad as that is they don't have faith that you're going to be able to run it. Uh -huh. We all want to have faith that we can do the deal, but we need to listen to the seller because the seller may see something in us and they know their business. So if they don't have faith that we're going to be able to run it, it may be wise for us to go on to the next deal. I, that's something that I never thought of. I, I have understand the whole thing about how banks only provide 7% of the financing. And in this day and age, if you're a legitimate business person and you go into a bank and you have all your numbers lined up and uh, you ask for a loan, they're going to find some stupid reason to paint you to be a deadbeat. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I can go uh, to I can go to a bank and uh, have uh, an almost 800 credit score and uh, basically be called a deadbeat, uh, and they'll find something like, well, your debt to income ratio or your student loan, and I mean, I, I applied for something two years ago and actually had to, with a straight face, answer the question, why do you have a student loan? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I, 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 now at this point, now at this point, I already knew they were just yanking my chain, so I went away. So I wrote, I got a student loan because I was financing a meth lab out of my dorm room, and since that wasn't exactly covered in the curriculum, I had to find alternative financing. Is this good enough for you? Now, obviously, I didn't get that loan, but at this point, I already knew I wasn't getting it because they were so tight-fisted. Now, compare that to where we were before the Great Recession. I literally had bankers showing up at my home without calling for an appointment first with paperwork in hand begging me to accept loans. 
based on me having called up one day and said, hey, I was interested in what your loans are like. I mean, I mean, that just shows you how dramatically we've changed here. And a lot of it has to do with propaganda and sensationalism and, uh, and the overall breakage we see in our economy. So, yeah, if you're looking to a bank for, for financing, your best chance of getting financing or a loan from a bank is when you don't need one. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot more going on behind the scenes that we just don't see. And so it can become really, really frustrating, especially when you feel like the only option for you is to go out and try to get a, uh, a bank loan. Right. And 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 I'm not the first and I'm not the first person to uh, say that uh, the best time to get a loan from the bank is when you don't need a loan. I've been told this by people who are involved in venture capital. I've been told this by angel investors. Yeah. Uh, set aside their own interests in having me believe that, but. I've heard that pretty much across the board. You're more likely to get any help from the bank when you least need it. But when you do need it, they're going to yank your chain uh, because of algorithms that they themselves do not control. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and the really tough thing, too, is that as a deal maker in the space that we're in, it, it, it can kill your reputation to depend or, or even think that you can use a bank because we've seen deal after deal. And, and unfortunately, sometimes I have to preach this, preach this to my clients that I know the banker told you that he's going to get you the money and everything is totally fine. And I know it's amazing and terrible that that could be a lie. But I'm telling you that there is a 97% chance based on history that it's literally just a lie. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know what? You're preaching to the choir on that one. I can think a year ago, um, after I'd successfully paid off a loan, I figured, oh, I'll get another one just so I can, uh, just so I can thin out my capital a little bit and just have a little bit of a buffer mm -hmm. room. Just stick the money in the bank, basically, and pay it off just to have a buffer there. And, uh, and I was told, I actually got, I actually got a document that says you have been approved for this. Then I find out, oh, well, they changed their mind. <laughs> I know. It's, it's amazing that you can run an establishment that's literally based on trust. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I, I, I had some interesting fun with that one. So my representative at the bank, I, I said, so what happened here? So I have this, I have this uh, saying that I'm approved for this, and now I'm not. And she said, well, well this, well, this other underwriter looked at it. I said, what's the other underwriter's name? What's your contact information? And she said, well, I can't give you that. And I said, really? Really? I had some fun with this one. Let me just share this. I said, so you can't, you can't give me the information? Uh, this, I mean, this is a done deal. I have the letter. And now you're saying that this other person came in and just changed the whole deal? Well, I'd like to speak with them directly. I'd like to find out what the issue is. Oh, since you're not going to allow me the courtesy of doing that, then when I file an official grievance and get somebody in trouble, I'm going to say that you're the one that did it. And I actually did go ahead and do that. So I yeah. took so I so I wrote about so I wrote all my complaints about the process and uh, about the other underwriter and all the steps I'd gone through and and my full grievance and I wrote it as if my representative at the bank had personally done all of it and that really uh, shook some people up. They did end up making me an offer, but I found the offer insulting and I turned it down. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so for those of you who are listening, thinking, well, you know, getting from the bank might be a problem. You are far, 
from a loan. A lot of people have experienced this issue. And, and that even had a denouement uh, uh, when uh, I was in that same bank, because I have other accounts at that bank about six months later. And this person comes out uh, and says, you know, uh, I understand you own a business. And I was wondering if you'd think about maybe applying with us to a business loan. And I said, clearly, you have not connected my name to my face because we spoke on the telephone about this about three times. And if you had been connecting the name to the face, you would understand why I'm this close to putting you on blast in front of all these people. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so, so that tells you something else, too, is that, yeah. um, is that uh, don't fall for the promotions either. Because I, mm -hmm. from that same bank, I'm constantly getting pre-approved credit card offers and pre-approved loan offer offers. And I say, really, huh? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting story. Maybe you know you might want to update your your databases here a little bit because I've because I've <laughs> already because I've already said that uh, that I don't even consider you an option in terms of funding my business. And exactly. part of the reason we have Ace Chapman on the Business Creators Radio Show is to let everybody know: number one, you're not alone, and number two, your 93 percent opportunity for financing a deal is not going to come from a bank loan. Yeah. That's exactly right. And right. you know, banks need uh, infusion soft or something, man. Right. <laughs> because they aren't keeping good records with you. It's like, man, they just blast out the same thing over and over. And I, I'm, I, the worst, though, is, you know, when it comes to your deals, depending on somebody or a single person, and then you get to closing or the day before closing, and then they say, oh, the underwriter just got, the other underwriter whose information that we cannot give to you just got back to us. <laughs> uh-huh. See, see, see what I mean? So, uh, so it's not exactly a new story. But, but again, it's not usually, in most cases, not the entrepreneur's fault because just rewind five, ten years and it was the exact opposite story. It's like I was declining loans because I didn't want that many. Mm -hmm. And now it flips around like this, whereas in retrospect, I should have just taken them all and just banked the yeah. money and then uh, just used the money to pay them back if I didn't use the money. Yeah. And you know, the real downside, I'm really glad that you mentioned that and actually went back and pushed back. And that's part of the problem why banks get away with, with that kind of behavior is the simple fact that people are embarrassed. So people feel like, oh, it really is me. It's I can't get approved. Oh, I've got to go out. Maybe I need to improve my credit. And so they're embarrassed to fight back and say, hey, no, you said this. And this, you know, so I, I think things would change if more people would, would go out and, and, and do that and realize that, hey, you're not alone. It's their standard practice. It's not you. And there's no reason to feel like, oh, I was denied. You know, I, I have some reason to be embarrassed. No, no, no. I have nothing to be embarrassed at all because uh, my, you know, my personal credit score was good. My business's credit ratings are good. Uh, we uh -huh. have an excellent track record for paying down our debts. We have several loans that we paid off successfully without a single late payment. Uh, we have nothing to be embarrassed about whatsoever. Uh, why? Because I went to a loan asking to borrow money. It's because we needed the money. Otherwise, there would have been no need to take out the loan. I had absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about. Uh, and I even disclosed up front that, uh, that you know there's a small issue here because I took a piece of advice a long time ago that I probably shouldn't have taken. Actually, hey, since I have you here, I'd like to ask you this question. Um, years and years ago, I was given advice that if you don't have enough business credit cards, in other words, credit cards with your business name on them, 
Just use personal credit cards, but use them only for business expenses. The IRS won't care. Now, my experience is that in most cases, and again, I'm willing to be overruled and I'm not a tax professional here, the IRS isn't all that concerned as long as there's no commingling. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, it got handed to me twice that, oh, well, you have all this these these expenses and debts connected to personal credit cards, which means your debt-to-income ratio is some ridiculous number they came up with. And I said, yes, I know. Those cards were being used for the business. We're paying them off. I can provide you all the statements on those cards for as long as I've had the cards, and you'll see nothing but business expenses. But they just didn't care. Yeah, yeah. That's a tough thing. You're right about the IRS side. But as far as the bank, it's just, it, it's up to them, you know? So that right. underwriter can say, oh, blah, blah, blah. And the tough, you know, just, it, it's, it's all about, it's for some of us the economy and that kind of thing. But when you've got somebody who's looking for a reason, then that allows them to say, oh, well, this is the reason. And it's like, oh, well, that doesn't make common sense if you just look and they're like, nope, eyes closed. <laughs> that's yeah that's what that's what i ran into and that's why when i decided the empire was going to strike back i wrote up my grievance as if it was my contact at the bank who basically was a glorified teller i wrote it as if they personally had taken all the steps to yank my chain because they they, they didn't want to, they didn't want to connect me with the people responsible and i even said to the person bear in mind i'm going to be filing a grievance here and i'm going to be putting you on the hook for all of it since you are covering for this other person who lied to me uh i want you to think about this while i put you through the ringer would they have your back if the rules were reversed mm. and and don't and don't blame me when you have to go through the ringer i'm about to put you through i was upfront with it yeah yeah, and, and more people need to do that exact thing to try yeah. to, you know, at least just know it, it's, a, it's a terrible thing not to know what's going on. Right. And the exciting thing is, like I said, it's, it, when you have a deal, especially when it makes money, because even no matter what, the truth is, if, you're, if it's like in your case, you've got an established business. And so you've got, you've got the credit, you've got income, all that stuff is there. So right. there really are a lot of options out there for business like that. Uh, but the people that are doing startups, if there really are limited, limited options and you're stuck kind of trying to pay the uh, uh, entrepreneurial lottery of going out and, and figuring out where could I get this and the right. odds are just really, really low that you can, I mean, almost lottery level, that you're going to be able to raise something, raise money for something that is just simply an idea. Uh, it's, it's tough to pull that off. Right, right, right. So what I'd like to do here is, uh, you know, we have about uh, 15 minutes left, and you've given us some priceless information on what to think about when you consider buying a business you've opened my eyes to a few things that i never even thought of like the thing about would the seller extend you credit that right there was solid gold that tells you so much about the viability of the business you barely need even comment further but let's say now you have a business you've bought a business yourself and you gave me an example of how you turned around and you sold a business within months just by relying on past customer lists um, or let's say that you're starting a business and you've done the five years of blood, toil, tears, and sweat that uh, came from doing your own startup or doing your own launch. And now you're thinking, you know what? 
someday I want to get out of this. Maybe it's this, maybe it's next month, maybe it's next year, maybe it's in five years, or maybe I just want to make sure I have my options open at any given time. What do I need to start doing with this business so that it becomes a saleable asset? I love it. That's uh, one of the things that is really, uh, it's, it's easy to set yourself apart from the whole market of businesses for sale because there's so much chaos. And, and I won't name the, the business, of course, but I've got a client at this moment who's on a conference call uh, with some business owners who have an amazing, amazing business. But you get behind the, the, uh, the velvet rope and you get into the nitty gritty of what's going on behind the scenes and it is an absolute wreck. And literally, this is a business that was valued around 200000 and we may end up getting that deal at about half of that, just okay. because they, it's not organized. So one of the very first things is creating an SOP, creating your standard operating procedure. And you look at something like a franchise, a lot of what they're selling is just a standard operating procedure. And you see these things, you know, you're like, oh, I'm paying $40,000 as a fee just to the franchisor just to get this business system. If you can develop something that is a, a really strong SOP, there is actual monetary value tied to the fact that you have that. And, and you can see that in the fact that new business owners are willing to go out, even if they have to start it from scratch, they're willing to pay 50 grand for somebody's SOP. Now, if you sell that the right way, you, get, you can create a bidding war just based on the fact that nobody else has one. When a buyer sits down, especially if they're an untrained buyer and they're a newbie, a lot of what's coming to their mind is all the risk. And, and the risk comes to them in the form of, am I going to be able to run this business? What's going to happen if this goes wrong? And what's going to happen if that goes wrong? And am I going to lose all my money? And so what we like to try to do is sit that buyer down and ask them, okay, what, what are your concerns? Like, tell me what your, what your worries are. We put that, we pull out the SOP and they say, uh, you know, I'm really worried. You know, I'm, I don't want to have to do the manager's job. What am I going to do if the manager leaves? And you go to that section, employees in the SOP, and say, well, this is what you're going to do right here. And it tells you step by step. The very first thing is this is the person that's going to take their place in the meantime. Here's some of the things that they need access to. Here's where you're going to go and advertise to replace that person. These are all the things you're going to look for uh, in the resume. This is the training that that new person needs to go through. And you can go over to this training section to make sure that you're able to train them on everything they need to know to do the exact job that the person right here is doing. And then they may say, oh, well, what am I going to do when it comes to the marketing? You go do the same thing when it comes to marketing. Here's everything that we've done that's working. Here's everything that we've tried that didn't work so that you don't waste your time. But feel free to do, uh, you know, whatever. But you're able to break down an SOP all of their concerns, and that's what gets a buyer comfortable to write a check immediately. Ooh, that's great. Let me just pull out one thing and make sure I heard you correctly. Yeah. So in other words, you, you also include some documentation of here are some of the things that we did to grow the business that worked. 
And here are some of the strategies we used to grow the business that didn't work. And here are the reasons we saw as why at the time. So the prospective buyer can look at that and say, well, you know what? It's interesting it didn't work for you, but I bet you I can make it work. Or they can say, oh, yeah. cool, at least I know not to do that. Yeah, yeah. And that, that is. And a lot of them will think that. And you're able to give that to them and say, oh, well, here's this and this. And they'll say, oh, well, I can do it better than you. And that, that, you, the more you can get them envisioning what they can do with the business, the easier it is it's going to be for them to, to close that deal. Right, right. Like, like if somebody came to me and they had a and they had a business that looked like it was on solid ground, and they said, "Well, we were selling eBooks, but we never did any list building." I'm thinking, "What? <laughs> you made this thing successful without list building? Well, imagine what I could do with an eBook with list building." Yeah, I'll write you a check. <laughs> Hell yeah. Exactly. So, so it can have that effect. So, admitting or being upfront about what didn't work and the reasons why can also bring about that reaction. And it may increase the value of the business by showing you did the homework and also letting them create their own vision of how, hey, and if they want to come in, buy it and prove you wrong, whatever, you got your money. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Most more, you know, they come in and try whatever they want. And a lot of people do want to tinker and they want to put their own uh, kind of, you know, little imprint on, on the business in some way. And so a, a seller has to be willing to allow them to do that. Right. So the second thing, and one of the kind of, you know, we have a whole list of, of 40 of these things that we love to go into a business and, and right. make some tweaks to. But you just actually kind of alluded to it, is business owners love to sell potential, but they don't do the, uh, a little bit of legwork to really hand the people something. Um, you know, one of the things we bought a, a business that was a fitness business that had a really unique uh, concept in kind of the yoga space. And the person that uh, we bought it from was like, oh, you guys, I mean, you could franchise this business. We thought about franchising it. It's like, okay, yeah, well, whatever. You know, we bought the business. We get into the business, we realize that not only did they think about franchising it, but they had paid for the trademark, they'd gone out, they paid for an attorney to do some of the work and the research to, to franchise the business. They had uh, FDA and that kind of uh, initial documentation done. They spent some money on this stuff. So we get in, we find this, and we're like, oh, good, uh, you know, this is amazing. So a couple years later, when we were that, that kind of selling that business, we spent uh, maybe two thousand more dollars to get all of that stuff wrapped up. And when we went to go sell that business, we didn't just say, "Oh, this business has the potential to become a franchise." We said, "Hey, here's a, 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 some of the work that's been done to make this business a franchise." Here's the contact information of the people that have done the trademark and the copyright and all this stuff. Here's the paperwork on that. But uh, in addition to that, um, you know, we, we've got some contact for franchise brokers. They say that this thing could pay you know, for a single franchise. Franchise fee would end up being $50,000. So, you know, you sell three or four franchises in a year, you're talking some serious money on top of this. But we don't want to try to make you pay for this. All we ask is that you give us our asking price and we're going to include all of this for you. 
And that kind of thing gets rid of negotiation and, and it makes it a lot easier to get the deal that you want and not have to get as much seller financing and, and all those kind of things. But whatever the potential is, not just saying, not just mentioning the potential, but doing two things, doing a little bit of legwork and then putting some monetary value on that backed up by something else. So it could be the person that has, has the list and they, or they, they have the ebook without a list and they go to somebody else in the industry and like, so tell me how much money you're making from your list. And do you mind sharing some metrics with me and how uh, many emails you've collected and you know, how often you email and get all of that. And then you're sitting across from the buyer and you're saying, yeah, you know what? We don't have an email list. But what we, what we do have is we've got all the information. We know that if you start to, have, or start to offer a list based on our traffic, you're going to get about 20 people a day coming in. And based on that, you're going to get 10% of them that want to buy more consulting from you. And based on that, you're going to get this amount of income. And walking somebody through specific amounts of money is just a really powerful thing I've seen. Right. Yeah, and and some and I loved how you took my example, which I int- originally intended to be a ridiculous slash hilarious example, and you created something concrete out of it. So if somebody actually said, "Hey, we sell this ebook online, but we don't have a list," now that gets you thinking. Okay, so how do I position this? So we're getting a thousand visitors a day, or what have you, and based on our understanding of metrics, you can count on approximately this many opt-ins, which will translate to this many sales. Uh, we get our traffic from here, 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 and here. Now it gets people envisioning. Okay, so I need to put up this type of opt-in offer to build a list. I need to position the ebook this way so that those become buyers. This is how I need to write my email follow-up sequence, and this is how I need to bring them through the e-commerce. And these are the upsells I can put on the back end of it to increase my revenue. So it creates that thought process by giving them the data to go upon. Exactly, exactly. And two more things. I know we're about to run short on time, but I want to get these two easy ones in here. Yeah, we have about one minute, actually, before we turn it over to you for just a minute. So go for it. All right. So one of them is definitely approach strategic buyers. It's uh, you get a lot more money if you can go to somebody and say, hey, we've got this. It complements what you're doing and you're going to be able to leverage this asset and, and really take advantage of it, especially if they have a database of people and you've got something that can immediately go to that database. And that becomes a very easy, easy sell. The same thing is to, to work yourself out of the business as quickly as possible. It's a, you open yourself up to so many more buyers. If you can not only just get the people who want to come in and run the business, but also be able to sell the business to investors. And they just want to come in as financial investors. So the quicker that you can work yourself out of the business, the better. And the really neat thing is that working on that SOP that we talked about earlier, which you need to do anyway, is a great way to start to systemize your business and work yourself out of it. That's great. By work yourself out of the business, that means so that you're not in the business so much, so that you're managing it, running it, and owning it perhaps, but you're not the one doing the day-to-day tasks. Exactly. That right there is probably solid gold for our listeners because we have so many people who are either solopreneurs or they are both in and on the business thinking, well, how can I really sell this? Because any logical buyer is going to look at this and say, uh, well, without you, since you do all the work, there is no business. So the only way we yeah. can really buy this is to hire you as an employee. So this is motivation to build a business that doesn't require you, that where you can easily outsource most of your brilliance 
uh, to mm-hmm. others so that somebody else can come in with that same brilliance and run it for you. Exactly right. Right, right. Okay, so uh, so 30 seconds here, Ace. Uh, tell us how folks can get a hold of you and how you help business creators. I, I help people that are interested in buying a business instead of starting a business buy their very first business with our business acquisition program. And you can reach me, uh, shoot me an email to ace at acechapman.com, tweet me at, at acechapman, or go to our website, which is acechapman.com. All right. I've already been there, but I do encourage everybody else to check that out because that's a great resource. So, uh, Ace Chapman, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been both an honor and, for me, quite an education. I enjoyed it. Thanks. You bet. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and also subscribe to us on iTunes where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.